0: Welcome to UNSW Canberra's podcast series, Navigating Uncertainty. I'm your host, Pishamon Ilpantong. And in this episode, we will be featuring a leading Australian strategic thinker and naval historian who will share with us his observations on how to enhance Australia's strategic resilience. In such tumultuous and unpredictable times, we believe that careful work in the humanities and social sciences can shed light on many of our current challenges and help us to chart ways forward. This podcast is sponsored by the Asia-Pacific Development and Security Research Group and the Maritime Security Research Group and has been recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal People, the traditional custodians of the Canberra region. UNSW Canberra acknowledges their elders past and present and that sovereignty has never been ceded. Today, we have the privilege of welcoming Peter Jones to our podcast. Peter is a retired Vice Admiral and Adjunct Professor with the Naval Studies Group at UNSW Canberra. In the Naval Studies Group, he is a producer of the highly rated Australian Naval History podcast series and has just written a biography of Rear Admiral Guy Griffiths, which has been published by Australian Scholarly Publishing. Please note that Peter is speaking in a private capacity and not speaking for any of these organisations. Thank you so much for joining us today, Peter. My pleasure. Now, Peter, you've chosen as your focus in this Navigating Uncertainty podcast, the topic In Search of Strategic Resilience. Why strategic resilience and what does this term actually mean?
1: So, uh, resilience is really the capacity to recover from or endure difficulties. Uh, It requires uh, toughness and and, uh, redundancy to overcome these uh, difficulties and strategic resilience either looks at being able to cope with difficulties over a longer period or um, on a grander scale. Um, In the academic literature, um, strategic resilience is often discussed in in commercial terms, in fact, uh, as a source of competitive advantage for companies. But I'd like to talk about it um, as uh, relevant for our nation itself. and I would say in framing any discussion about strategic resilience, one needs to view it in terms of risk. That is to say, what is the likelihood of something um, uh, that may happen? What would its impact be if it did happen? And uh, what is the risk appetite to um, to not have anything in place to mitigate uh, those risks?
0: Right. So, clearly an exceedingly important term. But So, what does strategic resilience mean then for Australia? why should Australians care?
1: So, uh, perhaps some background and to to give sort of one um, angle on this for our nation. Um, So, in September 2019, the Naval Studies Group and the Australian Naval Institute held a seminar on the strategic importance of maritime trade to Australia. And it was held here at the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy. And it was part of the Goldrick series of seminars that we run, Uh, the seminar showed that Australia is the fifth largest user of shipping services in the world, and around 98% of all Australia's imports and exports by volume and 79% by value went by sea. So, shipping is vital not only for Australia's trade, but also for the maintenance of our advanced society. And I would argue, because of the decline in local manufacturing and the rise of globalisation, that Australia as a nation is more dependent on imports than any time since the second fleet in 1790. So, following that that trade seminar, um, the uh, Naval Institute and the Naval Studies Group co-produced a report. With the findings of, of the of that event, um, and in fact, it's available for anyone to look at on the uh, Naval Institute website. The report stated that um, if there were any significant disruptions in trade due to any variety of reasons, then um, it could have a very serious impact on Australia. With just-in-time logistics and imported commodities uh, that, um, that could easily become disrupted, uh, this would have an, an effect um, uh, even – just with short-term delays um, in, um, in the supply chain. So as I said, these delays could arise from a variety of causes and such things as blockages to trade routes. And, and earlier this year, we had an example of that where a stranded container ship blocked the Suez Canal. Uh, it could be war or political turmoil in the, in the source countries from, from where those commodities are coming from. And we've seen a number of those over the uh, over the decades. Um, you know, particularly um, oil-producing uh, countries. Um, most front of mind currently, of course, is supply chain disruptions caused by the COVID nineteen pandemic. Um, there could be escalations in international tension um, that could result in closing in closing some trade routes. There could be terrorist attacks. Uh, there could be wars, perhaps not even involving Australia, but. M- but may result in attacks on shipping or threats, which which may remove shipping from certain trade routes. So that's why Australia should care and why uh, we should have risk mitigation strategies in place.
0: Right, I mean, again, this is all very sobering to hear, um, especially in the age of COVID-19. Would you be able to elaborate a bit more on what some of Australia's key dependencies are?
1: So, probably the most talked about in the media is uh, is fuel. Um, there is a growing dependence on imported fuels as local refineries shut down and there are smaller local oil reserves and storage of imported oil. Um and we have just four refineries in Australia at present, one in Quinana in Western Australia, Altona and Geelong in Victoria, and one in Brisbane. It was pleasing to see that even though Quinana and Altona will close in, um, in uh, the near future, the government has recently in the federal budget announced funding to sustain uh, the Geelong and Brisbane Um, refineries. But even so, some oil and and lubricants are just not produced in Australia. Um, We annually import around 19 million tons of petroleum, um, and Australia does not have sufficient reserves in country to cope with the disruptions of any more than a couple of weeks. Um, Once again, however, it it appears that um, the federal government has um, become more sensitive to this um, vulnerability and are looking to improve onshore sto- storage reserves. Um, turning uh, to, I, I guess, something that really came out in the pandemic is the focus on our Australia's ability to produce pharmaceuticals and vaccines. About 90% of all our pharmaceuticals and personal protection equipment are imported we need to assess whether this is a satisfactory situation. I would argue it is not. Um, and as we have seen, these, when things come to the crunch, um, nations often act in their own self-interest, and we've seen that with, um, with vaccines. On the positive side, it's heartening to see that uh, efforts are underway to improve our local vaccine production um, capabilities. I would offer that these vulnerabilities uh, exist also in some more basic commodities. Um, In the early days of the pandemic, the government, in an effort to allay fears of uh, food security, stated that the value of our food exports exceeded our imports. This, I thought, gave an incomplete picture. And uh, while I can understand what the government was wanting to do to allay fears, Um, I think uh, if anyone um, really looks on the supermarket shelves and just sees where um, uh, products come from, you'll see that it is increasingly hard to find some locally produced products. If imports were halted uh, for whatever reason, then what local producers do exist in certain commodities, would uh, they would be hard-pressed to ramp up to meet the entire national demand. Underpinning a significant portion of Australia's food production is the use of fertilisers. At least half of our fertilisers are imported, and even some of our local production needs imported ingredients. Um, As As a sort of um, illustration of vulnerabilities, Uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book about the first class Twitter, the uh, Royal Australian Naval College. It was called Australia's Argonauts. And and one of the members was um, Commander Rupert Long, and he was uh, the Director of Naval Intelligence in the lead up to World War II. Um, Rupert Long... Uh, one day went to see the um, the head of British Phosphate Commission, um, Mr. Harold Gaze, and they talked about the fact that uh, the vast majority of uh, fertilizers imported into Australia came from Nauru, and uh, and in a, any conflict, they would be uh, vulnerable to um, to being disrupted. So, as a result of that conversation, um, Harold Gaze, on his own cognizance, brought in a um, uh, and and uh, and formed a one year stockpile of uh, of phosphate in Australia, and as it all turned out, that was fortuitous because um, during World War II in 1942, the Japanese captured Nauru and cut our uh, our supplies. Um, turning to technology um, that we use, the vast majority of, of the technology we do use now in Australia is imported, um, and it's interesting to read. Um, Australia's official World War II history volumes on the economy, science, and industry. And when you l- look for those pages, you see in many respects, we're much more self-sufficient in manufactured goods during World War II than we than we are now. The, the, decla- the um, decline in manufacturing um, in Australia, the reasons for that are uh, complex, um, include reduction of um, of large Australian companies, um, the ascendancy of of economic rationalism for for long periods of time, globalisation, the tax environment and and labour rates. While clearly we cannot wind back the clock to a protectionist manufacturing industry, we do see, however, that where there is a right level of entrepreneurship, uh, innovation and technology, that Australian manufacturing can actually compete globally, and and I think that we should encourage, where possible, um, these efforts. Um, Probably the the final dependency I would cite is the merchant uh, shipping itself. Over recent years, Australian regulatory regime, including the tax regime, um, has led to the decimation of the Australian Shipping Register. We now only have a handful of ocean-going merchant ships. Uh, this limits options for requisitioning ships in times of conflict and puts Australia really at the mercy of insurance rights in any period of tension.
0: Mm. Goodness, I mean, that's a fairly long list of risks and vulnerabilities that Australia currently faces. And we'll definitely have to come back um, and discuss a bit more about what Australia can do to mitigate some of those risks and vulnerabilities. But before then, I wonder, for those of us not too familiar with Australia's maritime trade and strategic environment... Can you tell us more about what the current scale of Australia's maritime
1: traffic is? So, there's nearly uh, 6,000 overwhelmingly foreign flagged ships making uh, about 32,000 port calls a year in Australia. Um, if there was a conflict in our region which disrupted this trade or required the Navy to w- escort shipping, it is clear that the Navy, with less than 20 destroyers and frigates, would um, have to be very selective about what ships you would escort or or, um, or what areas you would um, you would be protecting in particular um, so that the, the trade I, I um, spoke of can be, be broadly divided into um, imports for the maintenance of our society and exports for revenue now, among the latter, there are critical imports for other countries. So, liquefied natural gas uh, for the energy needs of Japan and South Korea are, are really vital for them, for their, um, their core energy needs. As I said, there is uh, limited Australian Defence Force assets to protect all that shipping. Um, and now, depending on the threat, there, there, there may be, um, uh, you, you, as I said, you'd have to be very selective about what... Um, where you would put those scarce assets? One of the key bits to uh, to that uh, that issue, I guess, is really understanding the trade routes, understanding which shipping is important, which shipping has vital commodities that you do need, um, and uh, and what are the vital exports that you, that uh, would you would uh, prioritise to protect. Um, It's interesting to look back prior to World War II, the uh, the Navy developed a very comprehensive set of plans to protect shipping in the port precincts, uh, port defences, the approaches to ports along the coastal routes and in the open ocean. And those plans were the uh, foundation for a very successful overall campaign that protected uh, shipping around Australia during the the subsequent conflict, and um, and that sort of work um, is probably worth doing again today, just in a system in a systematic way to understand what some of the issues are, what are things that, that you may need to put in place if um, international tensions got uh, uh, you know uh, deteriorated.
0: Our listeners at this point, they're probably thinking, what can Australia do then to increase its strategic resilience in the trade domain in particular? Um, you mentioned how there needs to be a systematic way, but can you perhaps explicate a bit more as to what that systematic way might look like?
1: Yeah, I can. Um, but pr- probably one thing I uh, I've just um, probably didn't also mention is that um, some of those uh, if you like maritime vulnerabilities, um, are also um, not just to do with shipping. And 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 in particular, the thing I'm thinking about is submarine communication cables. Um, so as uh, we are so dependent on the internet these days, and and communication generally for the transaction of our our business. Most of that traffic doesn't go through satellite. It actually goes through submarine communication cables. So that's just another area that you know we need to be alive to. That uh, that's a it's something that we depend on heavily. But um, in answer to your question, I think there's a there's a quite a few things that we could we could do. Um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, it would be really important to to really understand in some detail the nature of our trade, where, where are the most important uh, imports going, on what routes do they go, how many ships are involved, that sort of thing. Um, uh, so it's really just understanding the problem, developing an engagement strategy within defence and Holland government to raise awareness of maritime trade issues. So it's starting that conversation more generally within society. And then that then provides a foundation to then develop – you know, a um, a strategy to mitigate some of those uh, those risks. Um, you would need to review strategic and tactical thinking on uh, on the protection of trade from port to port. So, um, so over the decades, um, where tr- maritime trade has been um, vulnerable in periods of tension and war, there's been discussions about: do you protect? Just focal points, do you protect individual ships? You know, do you put them in a convoy? All those sorts of things. So there's some of those, if you like, operational sort of things, you just need to have a think about how, how would you do that in the modern era. You'd also um, need to initiate bilateral and multilateral discussions on the protection of, of critical sea supply shipping. So I mentioned the, um, the liquid liquefied natural gas to Japan and Korea, for example. So, clearly um, uh, it's of interest to us in terms of uh, es- export dollars, but it's also much more important for them in terms of maintenance of their energy needs. So, so clearly it's a shared problem that uh, it would be useful to uh, discuss with them. The, the other things just to, to mitigate risk would be uh, uh, actually improving rail infrastructure. So. Um, So there's less dependence on coastal shipping. Um, The use of fuel-efficient electric and hydrogen-fueled vehicles, um, we tend to look at that discussion in terms of the environment and all that sort of thing, which is fine. But if you can reduce the the number of um, petrol and diesel-powered vehicles on the road, that reduces the number of ships that you need to bring in imported uh, oil and you have a, a much more resilient economy
0: These days we going on from what you were saying just now we've been hearing a lot about um sovereign capability and certainly this concept of strategic resilience appears to be one of those that has perhaps even more wider ranging applicability. Um, You also mentioned just now the importance of submarine communications cables um, from Australia to other parts of the world and so I wonder in what other non-defense related areas do you see um, the concept of strategic resilience being particularly relevant?
1: Okay, so I guess I'm first off just conscious that I'm straying outside my area of of actual expertise, but I'll I'll just profit two areas. Um, And they are mitigating the effects of climate change and the other is strengthening our economy. And there's obviously a a link between those two. Um, So first, climate change. Um, We can see that there's been a lot of positive work looking at the extreme effects of climate change, particularly in the wake of the horrendous bushfires of 2019, 2020. Um, and we've also seen uh, following the drought that many farmers have showed great resilience and innovation in sort of changing some of their practices to drought-proof their uh, their farming operations. Um, what's been less progressed is, is that more strategic initiatives aimed at reducing both The nation's emissions, and also looking at a more resilient infrastructure, and this would involve, for example, um, more redundancy in our power grids, in our transport infrastructure, and also just in terms of urban design. Um, And turning to ways to strengthen the economy, there's probably a couple of areas that Australia could devote some attention. First off, diversifying our trade, both imports and exports, the overdependence on fewer larger customers is a sovereign risk, and we are seeing that play out uh, with our trade with China. China is both our biggest export market, but also by a factor of two, our biggest source of imports. Irrespective of the political relations between our nations, um, it is prudent to further diversify our export destinations and our import sources. I note that in the context of the recent budget, where the, the government has been encouraging industries to actually look at diversifying their markets, and and certainly many industries on their own batter are doing exactly that. Um, probably another area worth looking at is Australia's overdependence on on resources and education as as a uh, as an area for um, obtaining revenue. This has led to an unbalanced economy which as we have seen play out, leads to detrimental economic and social outcomes when there's any disruption in in those areas. A more diversified economy would spread risk and increase resilience. To achieve that, a, a coherent plan involving reforms in education, taxation, migration, superannuation, corporate governance reform, just to name a few, are required to actually achieve that. Modern infrastructures also need to facilitate these efforts and I'd cite as a success story in Australia, we're fortunate in the pandemic that the um, National Broadband Network was in large measure rolled out. Imagine trying to work from home or learn from home with the old ADSL network. Much more needs to be done though in the the areas of transport and other infrastructure to encourage efficiencies and decentralization of activity. I note that New South Wales government has recently discussed looking to upgrade regional rail links. And this is an example of the sort of work that is is required.
0: So, after all that said and done, how do you think Australia can become a more strategically resilient nation in comprehensive terms?
1: So, to achieve greater strategic resilience in different areas, we must be able to discuss issues at the macro level and then, then develop a coherent and coordinated policies across different levels of government with industry and with the broader society. And we need to have those sort of discussions. Um, as we've seen with the pandemic and the creation of the National Cabinet, it is possible to have greater um, coordination between different levels of government. But I think much more needs to be done, and we need to get into that sort of mindset. I think also there's a personal responsibility um, for people. Um, um, and it really, in two ways one is we need to encourage. Uh, politicians and and our community leaders to actually talk about things at that level, but also um, just looking at your own um, your your own footprint. Um, look at what things you import, um, what consumer goods and foodstuffs when you go to the supermarket. What, you know, I, I think where possible support local producers and local companies and this will materially improve our nation's strategic resilience.
0: All right, so let's look out for that kangaroo, right, on those products. Your solemn reminder really um, for us to reflect on our personal responsibility in all of this is is an excellent point to end this podcast on. Um, Really, thank you so much again, Peter, for taking the time today to share with us your insights. Thank you also to everyone who is tuning in. Please look out for our next episode and let's stay informed and stay safe together as we navigate this uncertainty.